Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. Well, I don't think they ran away. You don't? Like no, that? no. I don't think they ran away. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Wollner. This is Season 6, Vanishing Act, the untold story of Kristen Didi and Bob Anderson. To see articles, photographs, videos, and more about this season, visit inforum.com slash Dakota Spotlight. A quick and important note about this episode, to adequately follow along, you really need to have listened to the previous episodes of Season 6. We won't be recapping everything here today. You'll miss a lot if this episode is the first you're hearing about Kristen Didi and Bob Anderson. I'm co-producing this season with Jeremy Fugelberg. Here he is. Over this season of Dakota Spotlight, we've focused on the facts. This episode, we're doing something a little different. We're focusing on theories. Our theories. Because as we've worked on this season, James and I have followed the lines of evidence, sorting through what seems to make the most sense about what we know and what we don't know about the 1993 disappearance of Kristen and Bob. What we've ended up with are four working theories about what might have happened to them. What we think are the most plausible explanations. Now, instead of just laying them out for you, in this episode, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to present our theories to a professional, a retired North Dakota homicide detective. He'll be hearing about this case in depth and our theories for the first time. It's been a long road to get here. I started blogging about this case in 2015, long before I ever dreamed of producing a podcast. I started off with minimal knowledge about Kristen and Bob's disappearance, which I gathered from the North Dakota Attorney General's website. Two people went missing from Wishick, North Dakota on August 15, 1993. Police believe they were homicide victims, and one key piece of evidence was the fact that the vehicle they were traveling in was found 100 miles away from where they were last seen. That's all I had at first. From there, I just, well, I just kept going. I found Bob Anderson's family members, and then I met with them several times. I tracked down the folks at Cornerstone. I got a hold of court records. I interviewed state trooper Wes Meitinger. Fast forward seven years later, and here we are. Jeremy and I have spent months on this story, digging into more leads, examining records, working with and interviewing family members and others, re-examining everything we know about Kristen and Bob's case. I went to um, a school on uh interviewing and interrogation and the FBI agent that was teaching it he, he said that he didn't care what you said he the voice you are hearing is that of Bob Haas he's sitting down with me in Bismarck North Dakota on a Saturday afternoon those of you who listened to season three of Dakota Spotlight might recognize his voice Bob is retired from the Bismarck Police Department I started there in January of 1979 and I worked for Bismarck until March of 2013. Uh, during my career, uh, I was on patrol in training, and I spent a fair amount of time in investigations as one as an investigator, two as a sergeant or a supervisor, and then my last job from 2000 
2013, I was in charge of investigations. On this day, he's meeting with me and Jeremy, who's joining us by phone, to hear us out, to listen to everything we've learned about this case. Jeremy and I presented our detailed findings to Bob. He listened to everything we told him and took meticulous notes. Once we were done, he told us what he thinks about all of this. In this episode, we're going to provide you with a boiled-down version of those four theories, and we'll play Bob's thoughts on them as we go. When we met Bob, he refrained from commenting until he had heard all four of the theories, but today we're going to be playing his feedback in segments after each theory. We think that will give you better context. As we examined possible theories, we used a three-part test as we thought things through. So it's important you understand what that was, so you can see how we got to where we got. Those three things we looked for, motive, means, and opportunity. Motive, as in, did a suspect have a reason or a motivation to commit the crime? Means, that requires us to estimate if a suspect had the resources needed, say, money, a vehicle, weapons, or other equipment to commit a crime. And finally, opportunity, perhaps the most important of these three things. Did the suspect have a chance to commit the crime? Okay, here we go. Our four theories and a detective. Theory number one, runaways. The runaway theory is a theory that involves no crime at all, and it's basically this. Kristen and Bob drove to North Dakota and then ran off, abandoning their children, families, and friends for a brand new life together elsewhere. One version of this theory might be that they orchestrated an elaborate disappearing act, changing their identities and ditching the van in a manner that made their absence appear suspicious. Then they left the country. Let's look at motive then, starting with Kristen. What motive would she have to run off? To get away from her husband? Maybe, but she already had a strong support system and a plan for getting away from Clyde. Cornerstone was helping her, her friends were helping her, the courts were helping her. She was on her way, and it seems very far from a dead end in her efforts to change her life, far from that desperate option of just running off, leaving the children she adored. Nobody but Clyde Deedy has suggested Kristen would abandon her kids. He says she just ran off with Bob Anderson. And did Bob Anderson have a motive for running away, for just taking off? Interestingly, Bob's father, Aldine, originally thought that it was a possibility that Bob took off. And what motive did Bob's father offer then? Escaping his responsibilities. However, and this is important to note, once Bob's father learned that the Dodge van was discovered, abandoned, stripped of plates and VIN number, the whole ran away theory just went out the window. Also to note, Bob was very close to his family, especially his mother. He didn't seem to have a real motive to distance himself from his family. Now let's look at means. Kristen and Bob certainly had the means to run away, I suppose. They had transportation. They had Bob's van. It provided them with the opportunity to travel, but remember, their mode of transportation showed up just days later in Aberdeen, abandoned. Another means might be money, wealth, a whole lot of money, but they didn't seem to have that. Kristen was receiving welfare checks. In fact, she was expecting a new check any day, but she left without returning to pick it up or ever calling her friends to deposit it on her behalf. What's more, law enforcement in both North Dakota and Minnesota told family members and allies of Kristen and Bob there had been zero movement on their financial accounts since August 15, 1993. 
One might point out that the Dodge van was worth some money in itself. Maybe they sold the van to someone so they could purchase some other mode of transportation. But again, why does the van end up abandoned a hundred miles away the very next week without plates and VIN numbers? Finally, opportunity. Certainly Bob and Kristen had the opportunity to run away if they so wished. They were alone in a vehicle. They certainly could run off or try to run off. All they had to do was say, let's go and drive off. One major strike against this theory is this. They never regretted their decision. It's one thing to take off and think you'll never want to talk to your family or kids again. It's another thing to feel that way for the rest of your life. So really, they never started missing their kids and families and said, you know what, this is wrong. I want to go see my kids. They never had a change of heart. They never broke up, leaving one of them feeling lonely and missing family. Is it possible? Sure, anything is possible, but does it sound in any way like the Kristen and Bob we've gotten to know? We don't think so. Absolutely not. Here's what retired detective Bob Haas had to say about this theory. Well, I don't think they ran away. You don't? No, no. I don't think they ran away. I I think, you know, you pretty much hit on it a lot. I mean, her children. She ain't going to leave her children. She's not going to, and she's not going to stay away from her children. I think if uh, she's going through a divorce proceeding and she's got a North contact order and she had the kids with her before, I don't think that for an unexplained reason that she's just going to pack up and leave with a guy that she's known for a little bit. I I just don't, I don't see that happening. And yeah. After all this time, you would have thought that she would at least have reached out to him if she had the means or if she's still alive. But yeah. go, going yeah. to Canada, I, I, and you say that they didn't have a lot of money. No, no, uh, there's been no activity on their, their bank accounts or any of that stuff. They, they got to come up with something to survive. Bob's family doesn't believe that he can plan something like this. You know, think it out far enough in advance to, to think of where they're going, how they're going to get there, how they're going to survive. I mean, if he goes to work for somebody, if they're not just paying cash, if he's, you know, drawn in, he's got to give a Social Security number. That's got to pop up someplace. And yeah. I'd, I'd almost bet that uh, there's been no tax filings under his Social Security number or her Social Security number. And then Tiffany was supposed to deposit the welfare check and never hears from Kristen again after Sunday night. I, you know, they need money. I just, I, I, I don't, I don't believe that they ran away. That would be the, out of the four theories that you presented, that'd be to me the less possible theory that could have happened. I just, could it happen? Yeah, but I think it's very, very remote. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app.
If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Okay, here comes theory number two. We're calling this one an unfamiliar or random killer. In this theory, Kristen and Bob were killed by someone unknown to them, someone they just ran into by chance. Say, a serial killer passing through, or a hitchhiker. So again, starting with motive. Was there motive? Well, that really depends. There's a wide range of possible motives for such a wide open possibility. Robbery gone wrong, anger in an argument grown out of hand, random violence. Robbery or theft seems like an unlikely motive, unless the perpetrator was very desperate. Because Bob's 1979 Dodge van, while pretty heavily modified, wasn't exactly a pricey ride in 1993. And neither Kristen nor Bob were wealthy. And means, again, kind of hard to say. It all depends on who the killer is. Bob's van being abandoned would seem to indicate foul play of some sort. Would this fit into the random killer theory? Maybe. One thoughtful listener reached out and reminded us that Aberdeen, South Dakota, is a hotbed of train activity. It's called the Hub City, after all. So if someone, say a murderer, wanted to ditch the van and hop a train elsewhere, Aberdeen wouldn't be a bad choice. So throw that in the mix. Finally, let's look at opportunity. We do know that Kristen and Bob were driving a lot of lonely country roads that weekend they disappeared but we don't have any indication they were dealing with a lot of people outside of family members that weekend. Also, crime data indicates this whole theory is very unlikely. The odds of such a crime in North Dakota are very low, extremely low. We pulled statistics from the Department of Justice, which tracks major crime data across states every year. In 1993, there were a total of 21 murders in North Dakota. 21. That's less than a fifth of the national per capita murder rate that year. Of those 21 murders, 19 of them were committed by assailants known to the victim. How about a never-caught North Dakota serial killer, or perhaps a serial killer from elsewhere passing through the state? There are three other unsolved cold case homicides in North Dakota within two years on either side of when Kristen and Bob went missing, and some in South Dakota too. The state line's not far from Wishick, but there are certainly not enough to indicate an obvious pattern. Perhaps you've heard of interstate serial killers who murder all over the country, constantly on the move. A serial killer could have passed through Wishick and killed Kristen and Bob. Yes, the town is at the intersection of two state highways. But it's not exactly the main drag for people passing through the state. And we've seen no indication there were serial killers known to have passed through Wishick there and then. So a random killer or a serial killer, is it possible, plausible? Yes. Does it seem likely? James and I don't think so, no. Here's what Bob Haas had to say. A random killer, possible, but I don't think probable. Now, nowadays, I think with people coming into North Dakota and stuff, I think it might become more of a, a possibility in today's age than it would have been back in the early 90s. Uh, and especially... In, in a town like Wishick. Uh, Wishick isn't anywhere close to any, I guess, major routes. And to have a stranger just passing through that they would have met or something, I just, I, I, I have a problem with that because 
the majority, and you hit on this too, is that the majority of people that are murdered in North Dakota, and I think it still holds true today, I, I can't really say because I'm not connected with it anymore, but everything that I was ever taught and everything that, that my experience in, in investigating or working these types of crimes is that usually the person that kills somebody is also known to that person who was killed. There, there's some sort of relationship there. It's, it's not just a total stranger like walking up on the street and, and kidnapping you or, or killing you. Could it happen? Yes. But I think in North Dakota, it's, it's, uh, I think it's, it's a slight chance. I have the same feeling about that as I, as I do the, the running away. I think it's a possibility, but I, don't, I think the probability is pretty low. Theory 3. Kristen's father, Darvin Gable. Throughout our reporting on this season, we've frequently heard from people, especially from folks in the Wishick area, who tell us we need to look closely at Kristen's family as a possible suspect, specifically her father, Darvin. We've heard lots of dark accusations. Again, let's look at motive, means, and opportunity. Motive. Most of this theory, saying that it was Kristen's dad, rests on her background and relationship with her family. Kristen did seem to be the black sheep of the family. She'd changed her name away from her birth name, Valerie, and family members we spoke with talked about her as somewhat estranged from the family. They also pointed to her then-husband Clyde as someone who distanced Kristen from her family as well. Kristen's description of her family to others was of a very troubled, dysfunctional, abusive one, one from which she was glad to escape. We also heard multiple reports that law enforcement was frequently out at the Gable residence. We can't confirm that, and what frequently means is in the eye of the beholder. We did pull a background check on Darwin, which includes a look at any criminal records or court activity, and while there's nothing in and around 1993, there is a burst of entries under the criminal records section in 95 and 96, including preventing arrest, burglary, and an acquittal for bribery. We don't have the full court records for these, but they do indicate that Darwin was certainly in trouble with the law, at least between late 1995 and 1996. That doesn't make him a murderer. As to means, we don't think any extraordinary means would be necessary for this theory at a remote farmstead, especially because there was plenty of opportunity, theoretically anyway. From our reporting, we've gathered it was possible that Kristen and Bob stopped in at the Gable Farm the weekend they disappeared, possibly to pick up keepsakes, Maybe photos. We've heard from a couple of people that Kristen had a confrontation or dispute with her father and possibly a brother, but the sourcing is not very strong or consistent with other reports that have checked out. And it's possible people are getting mixed up, confusing the Gable Farm with the Deedee Farm, where we know Kristen did encounter Clyde. The best evidence we have against this theory is what Gable family members told us about the Elder Gable's whereabouts that weekend. Two of Kristen's sisters and a niece told James they distinctly recall leaving with Darwin and his wife Betty on a trip to Idaho that weekend in August 1993, on Saturday. And we know for a fact that Kristen and Bob were seen alive and well into the next day, Sunday. Darwin's daughter, Sandra, Kristen's sister, told us that law enforcement took the Gable family photographs and gas receipts from the trip to Idaho to verify the journey. Sandra told James that after Kristen and Bob vanished, Word around town was that Darvin had done it. But that couldn't be, she said. He was on that Idaho trip. Darvin died in December 2020, so he can't speak much in his own defense. 
As we've discussed in the past, the small town rumor mill is a powerful force. And for better or worse, it can be a maker or breaker of reputations. It could be a nameless and shameless accuser. Also, it can be just flat wrong. If Darwin was a serious person of interest, still under suspicion, it seems likely law enforcement would have mentioned that when they sat down and talked to the Anderson family in 2015 at that meeting in Napoleon. But they didn't. Seems likely that theory didn't check out. As far as her father, you say that two of her sisters and a granddaughter both indicate that uh, he and his wife and the daughters and granddaughter were in Idaho during that weekend. And they have gas receipts and photographs that they showed. Do you know if copies were ever made of these gas receipts or if this was ever entered into any evidence? Or Unfortunately, no, we don't know. So we only have this source. Uh, Kristen's sister told me this years ago. Before then, I'd never heard it from the Anderson family who got most of their information over the years from law enforcement. So it was news to them, too. This, the way I remember it, was it wasn't like the Anderson family confirmed that law enforcement said this or knew about this. So we only have one source. Well, I shouldn't say that. We, these two siblings. We have multiple sources on the trip. We have just a single source on the photos and gas receipt. Although I do recall from your interview with her, uh, Sandra, uh, that she said uh, she never got those photos back. And she was upset about that. You're right. Yeah, that she, she claims that law enforcement took their photos. She never got them back. But I've never heard that from law enforcement myself or from the Anderson family who, yeah. who spoke with law enforcement. So, so I guess if... If these things were dropped off, then I would imagine they're probably in a cold case file with BCI. That would be, I guess, my guess on it, knowing that they take over the cold case investigations in the state of North Dakota for the for the most part, I think, on the, the smaller agencies. Yeah, they, they have the case now. Yeah. yeah. Well, then I would imagine that they probably have uh, all that stuff there. If Sandra coming forward and saying that they... Uh, were in Idaho at the time of the disappearance, I would just have to say that you could probably wipe him off unless Sandra's lying. Hmm. And I think at this particular point in time, is there any reason to believe that she would be covering up or protecting her father, especially now that he's dead? I was just struck, too, by uh, when she was talking about it with James, how uh, she talked about how they had taken those and the part where she just said, yeah, they never gave it back. That still bothers me. Um, seems like just a very real human thing that could have happened. <laughs> um, when it doesn't, it just to me, that doesn't sound like a made up, like when you're making up a story, you kind of, I don't think you think of those kinds of details and or maybe you do, but that part rang true to me. Well, while I had, um, and Jeremy and I have talked about this several times, we have different views on this. I found it crazy that you would keep your, gas receipts but apparently it's a common thing <laughs> but then you gotta you gotta remember i guess the culture and i guess uh i don't know how to put this uh the type of people that live like in in Wishick and napoleon and ashley and those areas down there i mean they call it the iron triangle for a reason germans from russia they probably all have grown up in that area 
Uh, there's a long lineage of family farms, family people that live within there. And uh, I mean, hearkening back to my father-in-law, he keeps records meticulously. And he's, he's an old German. That's the way that they were raised. And if you go down there, you'll find that you run into some of those old Germans that are still doing it to this day. And if he's a farmer, maybe he's writing this off on, on his taxes for a business trip or something. So that brings us to our final theory for why Kristen and Bob vanished. Clyde Deedy, Kristen's husband at the time. Again, let's start with motive. Did Clyde have a motive, a reason, or reasons to kill Kristen and Bob? Compared to others we've talked about, yes, Clyde had some potential motives, including revenge, jealousy, and getting child custody. Let's look at revenge first. In May of 1993, just three months before his wife fell off the face of the earth, Clyde was charged and convicted of assaulting Kristen. He was sentenced to three humiliating weekends in a workhouse. Why did this happen? Because Kristen pursued the charges after Clyde ran over her foot. At the time of the disappearance, Clyde and Kristen were in the middle of a divorce. And a child visitation investigation was pending too. Things weren't really going great for Clyde at that point because Kristen was making his life very troublesome. What about jealousy as an added motive? Kristen had a new boyfriend, Bob Anderson, and sure, Clyde had sought a divorce from Kristen, but that does not automatically redact the possibility of jealousy playing a part. Although they had been separated for months, Kristen was still married to Clyde, and suddenly she's happy with someone else, with Bob Anderson. And what about child custody? Without Kristen in the picture, Clyde would get full custody of the kids. The divorce would be pretty straightforward if Kristen never showed up to court, which is exactly what happened. Now, let's look at means. Did Clyde have the resources and means needed to kill Kristen and Bob? It sure seems he did. In fact, Clyde said so himself. He had bragged as much to a judge in Minnesota that if he really wanted to hurt Kristen, he knew how to. Something about pressure points, knowledge of human anatomy. If we consider that Kristen and Bob may have met their demise at the Dee Dee farm, there are many other things that point to means and resources. A farm is usually equipped with all kinds of heavy machinery that could be potentially used for causing harm to someone, or in helping to dispose of or hide a body. Finally, opportunity. Did Clyde have time and a place to commit murder? Again, likely yes. He was dealing with Kristen and Bob on an isolated family farm, a remote place miles from the closest town. His family may have been gone, out of town, for a wedding. He might have been there alone, or he may not have. Regardless, a farm is equipped with structures, barns, buildings, ample room for a crime to take place, out of eyesight from others. In this theory, we need to also look at all the circumstantial evidence and the depth of the investigation into Clyde. Here are a few things. Clyde reportedly stayed at the Ward Hotel, two blocks from where the van was abandoned. Bob Anderson's clothing was reportedly found on the Dee Dee property. Clyde Dee Dee appears to be distinctly uninterested in finding out what happened to his wife. Even though he is possibly the last person to see her alive, 
He doesn't recall the details of the encounter. Kristen's friend and neighbor confronted Clyde just weeks after they went missing, telling him it's too early to be removing items from her apartment. A confrontation took place and words were exchanged. What he said to her scared her and led her to believe her life might be at risk. Kristen and Bob sought help from state trooper Meidinger before heading to the Dee Dee farm, never to be seen again. Kristen told friends in Bloomington she was having trouble getting her kids back. All of this is circumstantial, but it's a rather large pile, isn't it? One major piece of actual evidence is missing, however. Actually, two things. Two bodies. Kristen and Bob. This stuff seems really big and telling, but clearly it's not enough. Why isn't it enough? Why isn't there enough? Well, basically, you don't have any evidence of a crime being committed anywhere. I was, I was sitting here thinking, did anybody ever do a forensic exam of the interior of that van that Aberdeen PD had? Because those folks, and, and granted, their DNA and stuff is going to be in there because they were staying in there. But if they were killed and transported in that van, then there should be some microscopic type of evidence as far as, as blood, etc., within that van. But it's probably way too late now. That thing's probably been destroyed or something. No, a matter of fact, it is, my understanding is it's in Logan County being held as evidence. I recently confirmed from the current sheriff that it is indoors. I asked him that question. He said, yes, it's indoors. And I told him a lot of people are asking about, you know, with new technology, maybe, you know, and he said, I can't comment on current investigation. So to my knowledge, it still exists. It also, you know, was getting used for two years by I mean, I think we even heard from one person that it was actually being used by Aberdeen PD as like a stakeout vehicle. So it was like in use those those two years, which I mean, I guess that doesn't necessarily mean everything got erased from the inside. But but basically, back to my question, there's no evidence of crime. Right. Unless they can strip that van down and do a forensic exam on that van. And maybe that's why they wanted a hair sample from Clyde hmm. to do DNA testing with the van. Maybe it's already been done. So without, without proof of a crime, it's just impossible to uh, prosecute? or I don't think with what you have right now and what is out there, unless, you know, BCI's got stuff that they're not letting us know about, and I don't blame them for not letting us know it's an active investigation. But unless they have something that they're working on right now, I doubt very seriously you're ever going to find a judge in North Dakota that's going to sign off probable cause because that's what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to take everything and, and go see a judge and explain it to a judge on why somebody should be arrested for something and the judge is going to have to sign off on it. And even after he signs off on it, if he ever does, then they're going to have to have a probable cause hearing after an arrest is made and they're going to have to go through this again. Right now, Clyde's saying that they ran away, they took off, and... There's nothing really there that tends to disprove that. And I think as each passing day goes on, there's less and less. Except for that, with each passing day, it, it's less likely that they ran away. 
all. I don't think they did. That, that would be, I guess, furthest from my mind right now. We've talked about a couple of things we could still do. One is getting in touch with lawyers or people who represented Kristen in the divorce and finding out who owns, yeah. who owns the farm today. Is there anything else that comes to mind um, that Jeremy and I could do or could have done better or um, anything you're disappointed in? <laughs> well, like I told you initially when you reached out to me, I mean, the podcast that I followed, you're very thorough. So I've never been disappointed in anything that you've done, James. I think you're very thorough and you're very concise. And if, if you weren't, I don't think you'd be doing this right now. I think you got a good investigative mind. You're 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 crossing a lot of T's and dotting a lot of I's, and it's it's tough on something that's been this long. And when you don't have people, or you got a lot of people that are now dead, that you could ask, you know, serious questions of, or somebody that doesn't want to talk to you anymore, or doesn't want to talk to you to begin with. I think the daughter, I think if she were to talk she might be able to add some insight as to what's going on. That's a really good point. And we wonder, you know, if she's listening. Right. Or not. So there you have it, our four theories and some professional feedback. Hey, Lila, what do you know about your daddy's daddy? They couldn't find your daddy. Yeah, we're still looking for him. You think, you think we'll find him? No. Why is that? Because. Next week is the last regularly scheduled episode of season six. While this season has been about trying to figure out what happened to Kristen and Bob, there's something else we found, something deep and profound. Loss. What's missing when two people disappear forever? We will revisit Chase Anderson, Bob's son, and others to understand how they've come to terms with the disappearance of Kristen Joy Deedy and Bob Anderson, how it's changed their lives. That and more next week. We hope you join us. We want to thank Bob Haas for sharing his thoughts with us on this case. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications. Remember, the investigation into what happened to Kristen and Bob remains an open case. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. If you have any information about this case, contact law enforcement at the Logan County, North Dakota Sheriff's Office. The number is 701-754-2495. Please consider subscribing to the podcast on Spotify or Apple or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like this show and want others to discover it, please consider leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. And why not join the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group? Just search Dakota Spotlight on Facebook.
Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.